Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I was waiting for you to bring it in. Why am I bringing it in? Because this is yours. The email, is, your the email section is still yours. Is the email section still my portion of the yeah, show? Yeah. Right. I'm not ready for that level of commitment. Oh, you know, is that too much for you? Right. I, I could understand how that would be very hard work for you. Anyway, today we're going to do something very different. Normally, the show is planned within an inch of its life, isn't it? This, this has been planned for a while. We know how many issues we're doing, we know what we're stopping, if it's a multi-part show, we know where we're breaking up. But, Michael originally pitched what we're doing tonight, which is Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers of Victory, both hardcovers, as four episodes. And I'm reading it going, this isn't four episodes, dude. And you're like, yeah, it is. And then I don't see you for three days. And then when you come back, you're like, you know the notes I've done for tonight's show? I don't think this is going to be four episodes. Well. (laughs) So when are you going to trust me is the first question. The second point is, because of that, what we're going to do with it is something we've never done before. We're just going to cover everything I've read tonight. And then next week we'll cover everything I've read again. So basically, we're on the fly, these two, aren't we? Mm -hmm. There are very little notes. Michael's done the synopsises and stuff. There are very little notes, by which you mean there are no notes. By which I mean, yeah, we've not made any, because I didn't know what what your plan was. I told you what my plan was. Your your plan was, let's do Seven Soldiers of Victory. Okay. I I told you how many issues it would be per show, and you, you, in denial, just didn't didn't bother doing any notes anyway. It's not a denial. It was more a case of, I've sat down to read this hardcover book that you've got here, Grant Morrison, Seven Soldiers of Victory, Volume 1, with J.H. William III, Seaman Bianchi, Cameron Stewart, Ryan Sook, Fraser Irving and Mick Gray. Right. They all get credited, because it's a modern comic. And I'm reading it going, alright, so it goes from issue 1 to issue 1, to issue 1, to issue 1, and then it goes to issue 2, to issue... I'm confused! Did you not know anything about this? No! Did you read the blurb? What blurb? The blurb that say... Well, it's, the inside dust jacket... It's made up of seven four miniseries. Yeah, but I, I didn't... I didn't... It was a disconnect between what it was telling me to reading it. I read that, I went, alright, so they released it in the order that it was released. Big deal. I thought they'd released the four-issue miniseries and then another four-issue miniseries. No, they, they released the seven right. four-issue miniseries so. in the, the release order. Anyway, right. So the, the bottom line is you're taking lead on this. And the, the the result for the lovely listener is this may end up being two. It may end up being three. Who knows? It could be any number of those. My thinking it's was It's not going to be four. No. When, when we did Legends, which was a six-issue one, that was like an hour and a half. Yes. And this was seven issues. Yes. So, taking off that, 
I was thinking. And more goes on in Legends. Even though this is a Grant Morrison comic, it's fair to say more happens in an issue yeah. of Legends than an issue of this. Even though the whole may but be greater. I, when I was planning out the, the shows and how many issues per show, I was thinking of editing time. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Alright, well, it may be two, it may be three. We're going to see how it goes. We're very freewheeling in Lewis. Yeah. But we do have to do some emails before we move on to the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Chris Franklin has emailed in. Honey Hush, which is nice. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Chris. Hush. Hmm. If ever there was a big budget no substance blockbuster, it was Hush. It's a popcorn flick of a Batman story. It even seems to have heavy rewrites for the final scene, just like a lot of action flicks. I've always wondered if Jason was really meant to be Hush all along and DC switched gears when that infamous page of Lee's leaked online. Was it the first comic story spoiled by the internet? Maybe. To be honest, I haven't read it in years. I did like the artwork, aside from Lee's horrid Joker. Man, I loathe his Joker. Of course, now he looks downright quaint next to Leatherface Grease Monkey Joker. Michael mentioned Lee has never evolved. He did briefly flirt with more of a Miller-esque Sin City style on some image comics he did. Death Blow, maybe? It was something with death in it, take your pick. But that was more of an experiment, similar to the one Barry Kitson did on an arc of Batman's Shadow of the Bat in the late 90s that was just horrid. It was like Scott McDaniel spilt ink all over his pages or something. Ugh. I did enjoy your examination so far, particularly about Batman's boots. First Lee's obsession with the tread work and then those propellers. Did Adam West ever pull out anything more ridiculous? I'm not sure they'd even go there on Batman the Brave and the Bold. Looking forward to more, including the issue with Nightwing and the pseudo-Jason. I will admit the story is confusing and ultimately unsatisfying as it ended up being was engaging, and I did anticipate the next issue each month. Till then, Chris. Well, we don't really disagree with any of that. Yeah, bat, bat r- propeller blades. In his boots. That was a little bit stupid, wasn't it? Did he have a jetpack in there as well? It was fun, though. Yeah, well, I was just, just expecting like the rest him to of the series, it was fun. It was fun, but dumb. It was like I was expecting him to do, like, in Batman Forever. Is it Batman Forever? No, it was Batman and Robin, where he turns his things into ice skates, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. I really haven't expunged that film from my brain. Thank you, Christopher. Damien Lee emailed. For shame is the subject heading. Hey, Leyland's young and old. I watch it Lee just a quick email as I've been hideously busy over the last couple of months assessment time at school getting a new job dad stuff and to my shame one of the things I haven't had time for is your or any podcast moving on to our next email (laughs) I'm kidding the silver lining is I now have 8 to 10 episodes to catch up on yay it's like when I first started listening before I knew you were the step toe and son of the podcasting world (laughs) I do like that Man, it would be hilarious to hear your show start with that theme tune. Do you know, I never thought of that. That would have been a good one. Okay. Step to something. And could just gorge on your brilliant comic geekery to the fullest. To make it worse, better, the first one I dove into was to fuck Transformers UK. Right. For those that don't remember <laughs> that, that uh, anachrony. How could I have missed it after haranguing you for so long? Thoroughly enjoyed your coverage, and I get why you went for an early story. To be fair to Furman, though, this was his first story, and he did subsequently own the franchise for decades. If you do it again, I'd recommend Dinobot Hunt, 
are in the national interest. Both relatively early, not quite as continuity reliant as other stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you for covering it and for bringing together your show and my lifetime love. Talk about validation. I also enjoyed your Flash Rebirth episode, which was great. I read it for a second time a week or two ago and agree with both of you about Van Skyver. His art is lovely, but it just worked better on Green Lantern than this. I may want me to buy the John's Flash collections, but again, pounds. Oh, I also finally got all of the Infinite Crisis trade paperbacks. The omnibus is just stupidly expensive now. And I got everything in trade paperbacks for a third off the price, but... I still want the omnibus. Could you tell me when you covered it, as I really don't recall, and would love to hear what you thought? I enjoyed it much, much more with the peripheral stuff, except the between-panel Superman issues, which were mind-bogglingly pointless. Reading the original Crisis Zero Hour and then Infinite Crisis over the space of the last couple of months have reminded me how much I love my DC era, even if I will always be a Marvel zombie at heart. And it makes me sad to think those takes on the characters are no longer around to catch up on. Plus, it's a change. That's French, that, isn't it? Yes. Uh, we we didn't cover Infinite Crisis. We've never done Infinite Crisis, no, have we? I did. We did Final Crisis? Yes, but I covered it. I say covered. We looked at the omnibus with Michael Baylor. Oh, yeah, you did it. Yeah. Without me. Without you, yeah. Because I'm just not important. You, you were in Sands Parks. That's true, I wasn't even here. So, yeah, you got invited on other podcasts without me. Uh, a couple now, <laughs> So sorry for dropping out for so long, continues Damien. But I'm back, and I have a 70s marathon to enjoy. I'm itching to get to what you thought of the end of S.H.I.E.L.D. Spider-Man 2 for all its other problems. Rhino! I teared up, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I was convinced it wouldn't happen till 3. X-Men Days of Future Past loved it, even if it did just ignore the continuity problems rather than solve them. Godzilla! The only person I know who liked it, but I'm a sucker for Cloverfield-esque. Godzilla was just playing that's awesome was that yeah I didn't get to go and see it did I going to be some great ironing sessions <laughs> and commutes to work catching up looking forward to it thanks as ever I'm not so brief damn Damien you're very welcome Damien don't let it happen again is all I have to say Luke Giaconetti is next those 70s shows oh the horror also the monsters Dear stalkers of the night. I like being a stalker. I'm quite fond of what that do you, idea. Do you stalk the moon? Just night. Okay. Just just the night, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine it's quite a difficult task, <laughs> stalking the night. Do you have to do it during the day? Because surely you have to stay behind it. Do you know that's a very good point? Yeah. So if you stalk the night in the day... When it arrives, it has defeated you, surely, because you can't hold back the night. Yeah, so we'd have to travel around the world constantly behind... Yeah, behind Twilight. Yeah. And just keep following it around, constantly failing in your mission. It's a bit <laughs> of a drag, really, doesn't it? Suddenly, I don't want to be a stalker <laughs> of the night. <laughs> Horror, says Luke, is one of those genres which best benefited from the loosening of the overly restrictive comics code in the 70s. And while we were never going to be able to return to the halcyon days of EC Comics... The proliferation of what might be called mystery books gave the illusion of it, if nothing else. From there, the explosion of ongoing horror characters was a next logical step, but a fairly daring one. The books and features like Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, and I, Vampire, in the pages of House of Mystery, found success in this period, and this is a testament to the broadening tastes of the market and better service of the market by the publishers for the most part. 
I've read a little bit of Tomb of Dracula, but I'm more familiar with some of the other Marvel monsters of the era, including the werewolf. But right around the time I started getting seriously into comics, I was introduced to the later incarnations of the heroes from that title, the Night Stalkers, who starred in the eponymous book, Hannibal King, Frank Drake, and Blade worked together to take down not only vampires, but all occult menaces, which brought them into conflict with other good-aligned supernatural forces, such as Morbius and Ghost Rider, just as often as it forced them to team up. Elements of Tomb of Dracula, including many supporting characters and subplots, were brought back or resolved in the title, and while it's decidedly 90s and only lasted a year and a half, it makes for enjoyable reading. Night Stalkers as a book is most notable to me as it was where Blade moved from using teak weapons to using silver as we see in the movies and modern Marvel U. I'm not as well read on Swamp Thing as I would like to be. I did watch the movie whenever I could catch it on Channel 11, WPIX, whenever I could, and the sequel is a favourite of my brother and it highs during its run on HBO. I tried his book a few times during the later Vertigo stuff and found it a bit self-important. The new 52 book was actually quite appealing, but I ended up dropping it for budgetary reasons. I'm more familiar with Man-Thing, having read a few issues of his comic over the years, as well as seeing him in guest spots and team-ups. For what it's worth, I've also seen his movie, and no, it's not good. But to be fair, Man-Thing himself looks quite good in it. I enjoyed hearing you guys cover both these muck monster origins. Definitely whetted my appetite to read more of these, along with The Heap, whose stories are mostly now in the public domain and can be read on such sites as Comic Book Plus. I never really put two and two together insofar as how similar these guys' origins were. Much like the Vision Red Tornado kerfuffle, it's one of those strange coincidences in the comic world which helps drive fanish who's better arguments. Maybe now that they name-dropped the man-thing on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he'll show up in the Doctor Strange movie. Have to say, fellas, loved those 70s shows and eagerly look forward to the original Clone Saga as a pseudo-sequel. A side note, Andy made brief mention of the DC title Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion. This book and its sister title, Secrets of Sinister House, were very intriguing origins. Their original titles were Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love and Secret House of Sinister Love, and were, as you might guess, hybrid horror romance comics. Both changed over to more standard DC horror for after four issues, but those gothic-inspired romances are actually very novel reads. Keep it up, fellas. Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. We're glad that those 70 shows went down well. Like a $10 whore. <laughs> did they go down well, or did they just go down? I don't know. I mean, if they're only a $10 one, presumably they don't have any teeth. <laughs> Which, depending on your point of view... It could be better. Is, yeah, yeah, so it all depends on what you think, doesn't it? Gotham Kid has emailed. Which is really Trey Hooks. But I like the idea of him being Mr. Gotham and Mr. Kid. <laughs> that just amuses me. <laughs> Dear Andrew and Michael, hush hush, sweet Leylands. Hello, Trey. I still owe you an email of some of those 70s shows episodes, but I find I forget what I want to say if I don't email while the episode is fresh in mind. Well, listen to it twice then, Trey. What else have you got to listen to? So much free entertainment, so little time is the problem. So first, hush. He continues. All in all, I agree with Andrew's assessment. The art is nice, but the story, meh. I think where I differ is I pretty much expect that from Jeff Loeb. Outside of Long Halloween, I think he's a fairly overrated writer. Blue was good enough, but the shtick was tired by yellow and wore thin by grey. I think this story is still remembered because A. It brought Jason back, and B. Jim Lee art! Well, we covered grey last week. We did. And we've coloured ye- covered yellow. And we've covered yellow, and we've covered blue. 
and I think it's only fair at some point, should we continue, that we cover long Halloween dark victory in Superman for all seasons. I think we've got to do the full. I don't think we want to do Challenge of the Unknown. Okay. I didn't like that. I thought you did? I liked it when it started. Yeah. Tapered off in the middle. Okay. Never recovered. Fair enough. Good idea, good beginning. <laughs> Not a very good ending. Anyway, Trey continues. I thought that the flashback with Alan Scott you mentioned in part one took place in Gotham, not Metropolis. I thought they were getting out of the car in Metropolis. They were. Because right. Because it's when he goes back to Metropolis he has the flashback. Right. There you go then. It was Metropolis. Uh, Bill Finger wrote both and made the city the stomping grounds for Batman and Green Lantern says Trey. Green Lantern's youth has had two explanations. Pre-crisis, Roy Thomas attributed to members of the team fighting Ian Carkle, an extremely powerful magical being. Post-crisis, it comes down to the star heart that powers him, especially when the others start aging faster than him and Jay Garrick. The ending is coming out of left field for new readers. How the hell would the riddle or hush know about Harold? Even if you use the later retcon from Winnick that it was Jason helping muck about with Batman and he and Clayface swapped places in the cemetery, Harold wasn't from Jason's era. Jason was dead before Bruce encountered Harold and took him in. So how could they know about him to find him? Even if they found him, he's mute. They couldn't tell him he was a former confederate of Batman. Actually, that's a very good point, isn't it? I, well, see, we've never read, or I've never read, I don't know if you have, the Red Hood Judd Winnick thing. I've just seen the film. I didn't know, therefore, that that really was Jason in the retcon then. Because doesn't that then make Batman's way of deducing that it's not Jason not work? Yeah. Because in Hush, he deduces that it's not Jason because Clayface is copying Dick Grayson's moves. Yeah. Not Jason's. So by doing So if it was Jason, then the way Batman works out that it's not Jason don't work. So they're taken away from the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Well done, Judd Winnick. <laughs> I mean, it may be very good. I've never read the Red Hood storyline. I've seen the film, which I thought was quite nice, but that has nothing to do with Hush. But yeah, that's a retcon that takes away from the original story and doesn't actually help. Yeah. Well done, Judd. We approve wholeheartedly. Obviously, Jim Lee wanted to have a Batman blowout by drawing all the classic characters, continues Trey, but I found the Penguin's absence notable. Yeah, the Penguin was nowhere to be seen, was he? Mm. Do you know, we completely missed that, didn't we? Maybe it just explains that the Penguin's not that interesting. Yeah. I like him when Paul Dini handles it. Paul Dini does a good job with the Penguin. Do you think Hush was done the Marvel way? With Jim Lee drawing and then Jeff Lobb. And then Jeff just adding dialogue. Yeah. Jeff Lobb going, what is going on? Oh man, this will never work as a story. Well, he should have just done 12 issue single stories that vaguely were loosely connected by the <laughs> Jim Lee drawn. Yeah. That would have been better. I enjoyed the 70s series, says Trey, but the only comments I can remember wanting to make six weeks later is in regards to the Barry Wally debate that popped up in the email sack in response to Flash Rebirth. I always preferred Barry to Wally and glad he's back. Part of it is Barry being my Flash when he appeared, but Barry was more interested in me because he had a life outside of being the Flash, whilst Wally's life revolved around being the Flash. I also like that Barry had several ways to use his powers that he thought of that his predecessor hadn't. Wally never did that. He received power upgrades by differing writers to make him stand apart, but it was never Wally learned to do X. It was X happened to Wally and now he can do Y. Anyway, I continue to enjoy the show. It always jumps to the top of the playlist when a new episode comes out. I will do my best to be more timely with my correspondence so that it reflects the enjoyment I get from the programme. Trey Hooks. Well, you're very welcome, Trey. That's an exceptionally good point 
about Jason and the retcon, which had we read Under the Red Hood, we would probably have mentioned in the show, but we haven't, so we didn't. So we thank you for that. David Gusarez emailed in, talking about Hush Part 2. Hamza and Michael, how's it going? How's it going? It's alright. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing alright. Summer holidays soon. Hey, <laughs> four weeks off. Gift. Hush 2! says David. A little better story-wise than the first six issues. There was a very noticeable decline in the art, however. I agree with your assessment, Senior Leyland. I think that maybe I was spoiled by Loeb's previous two Batman long-form mysteries. Great episode, though, as per usual. I get a little lump in my throat thinking that my favourite father-son podcast team's weekly shows may be coming to an end. I became a fast fan in a short time, something that I think speaks to how great a job you two do. Andrew, the quite redeemable shack, <laughs> tells me you're getting into Big Finish audios. Mind if I ask what you're checking out? Damn it! David, you've just reminded me Big Finish had a 99p sale on three audios for 24 hours, and I completely forgot to get them. <laughs> I saw it on my phone, and thought, I'll get them. Right. I'll get them on the main computer, though, so that they're in iTunes. Completely forgot. Damn it! Anyway, Shag recommended Blood of the Daleks, which begins the Paul McGann, Sheridan Smith era, so that'll probably be the first one I check out. Thank you, David. Thank you to everybody who emailed in. Uh, we will return after this commercial break for John Wilson's Star Wars show. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels. But the comics. And the video games too. It's like they're just stories. And Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them. Okay. Star Wars fans, relax. Here. Have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars Saga Cast at thestarwarssagacast.com. returned back from the commercial break they've just released a brand new still of Henry Cavill from the upcoming Batman Superman Superman vs Batman movie what's it called Dawn of Dawn Justice. of Justice that's it it looks alright he looks like he's put a bit of weight on he's He's, he's bigger than he is in the first he's one. He's bigger than he is in the first one. It's muscle weight, not yeah. fat weight. I'm not saying he's turned into fat Superman, <laughs> like you see at conventions. That Alex Ross one in the, um, the big Paul Dini book. Oh, yeah, where he looks a bit porky. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that. My, my only issue with it, it looks like he's got grey sideburns. Okay, I mean, it's just the lighting. Is it just the lighting? Yeah, you can I see thought, the highlights on his suit. I thought maybe they were, they were going to do the whole Superman and Batman are a bit older. 
but I mean, that's a nice photo, isn't it? Mm. Is that alright? Does the job. So I should turn the light on. Well, yes, but it's it's going to be dark, man. Is it a Batman sequel or a Superman sequel? It's a Superman sequel. It's neither. Because by all accounts, they are going to do a Man of Steel 2 later down the road. Allegedly. Right. This is this is Batman versus Superman. It's not a sequel to Man of Steel. So it's a spin-off. Yeah. Something like that. Right. Anyway, I get the week off, so I'm going now. <laughs> so, Michael... Yes. Tell us all about Seven Soldiers of Victory. However many issues we're covering this week. (laughs) Carry on. Comic books are a medium that simply tells stories with words and imagery, but have always been a medium in which writers and artists use to convey their opinions and to challenge the ways that stories are told, with writers such as Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman. Another of these writers was Grant Morrison, who has always had a fascination with how stories are told, and challenged this with stories such as The Invisibles, The Filth, and Final Crisis. He also challenged storytelling with his 2005-2006 meta-series Seven Soldiers of Victory. Based on the concept and certain characters created by Mort Weisinger and Mort Meskin, Seven Soldiers would be four standalone miniseries and two bookend issues that would work on their own, but when joined together, would form a much larger story. Starting as a JLA spin-off called JL8 in 2002, Seven Soldiers became a sequel to Morrison's 2005 JLA classified arc, in which an alien race, the Sheeda and the Nebula Man, attack the Ultramarine Corps. The two bookend issues would focus on the Seven Soldiers of Victory team, whilst the minis would focus on one team member, and have a different artist for each series. The series were The Shining Knight, Mr. Miracle, Clarion the Witch Boy, The Guardian, Frankenstein, The Bulleteer, and Zatanna. The order we're covering the issues in is the release order, which is generally considered to be the best order to read them, and is the way the trades collect them, as they show how they are all interconnected. The fundamental interconnectedness of all things. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's another thing. It's not really all that important, but for the story to work. <laughs> for the story to work, you need to have read this other issue that isn't in the tread. No, there's there's a kind of like in-story reason as to why they're all standalone miniseries is because for them to work as a team, they don't they can never meet each other. Right. Okay. Yep. Seven Soldiers of Victory issue zero was written by Morrison with art by J. H. Williams III coloured by Dave Stewart and lettered by Todd Clean. The cover by Williams shows this issue, Seven Soldiers, inside a big seven emblem. It's very typically J.H. Williams III in that it's very artistic in how it's laid out. It doesn't follow the standard conventions of a comic book cover. The Seven Soldiers of Victory logo is what the cover is built out of. The big seven has the seven people, the seven main cast members. Soldiers of Victory are like banners above and beyond. The sword that they're holding has an eagle on it. Then there's a skeleton head, a skull, in other words, (laughs) and a, a lightning bolt. It's a very, very good cover in and of itself. I like it. It's a poster cover, but it's a preview miniseries setting up an overall miniseries so in that case it works very well at least it's not a boring poster cover yeah it's actually a very Drew Struzan movie poster cover isn't it yeah it actually works out very well I like that not really got a lot of complaints about J.H. Willem III though have we no 
Uh, What's the cover of the trade paperback, though? The well, back. it's not the trade paperback, it's the hard cover. Is that a new cover for this collection? Yeah. Which is Zatanna and Clarion with a cat and all the other cast members. Who drew that, then? Ryan Suit. Is that Ryan Suit? Yeah. Oh, well, I thought that was really good. And the, the cover for the second one connects on, so it's one big image. Right, is it? Yeah. Right, the cover of the second hardcover. Yeah. Right, well, I'll probably notice that when I read the second hardcover. Go on, then. For the for the four trees, you just get four different artists to do them. Right. Are those covers not in the, the hardcovers? Yeah, they're at the back, in the bonus. Oh, right, well, I've not section. got those yet. I'm currently up to Clarion the Witch Boy Part 3, according to my bookmark. <laughs> That'll tell the readers what we're going up to today. Yes. Anyway. Prologue. True Thomas. The spider is being taken deep into Slaughter Swamp, where a man named Cyrus Gold killed a bunch of children. Whilst listening to the ramblings of the man rowing the boat, the spider is stung by insects he swears of people riding them. He is saved from the quiet Sheeda attack and is taken inside, where seven unknown men speak to him. He was hired by a mystery client to kill seven men in the swamp, but the mystery client was the seven unknown men, and the real target is the spider himself. Part 1. Shelley and the Super Cowboys Shelley Gaynor is a journalist who learned that she was the granddaughter of a member of the All-Star Squadron, The Whip, and decided to take the mantle of The Whip and become a vigilante herself. However, soon after the highs weren't enough anymore, and when she's contacted by Greg Sanders, a.k.a. the Seven Soldiers Vigilante, to start a new team, she agrees. Part 2. Big Time Country Shelley and Greg ride the plains of Miracle Mesa in the southwest. Back in the days of the Seven Soldiers, they fought the Buffalo Spider, but it has survived for over 100 years. To Greg, the spider means unfinished business. They decide to head back to the rest of the group. Gimmicks, a.k.a. Jacqueline Pemberton, a frequent attendee at superhero conventions. Boy Blue, who has a ghost suit that makes him lighter than air or harder than diamonds and has a horn that emits sonic impact vibrations. Dynamite's Dan, a superhero fan who bought TNT's equipment online. And Spider. There was a seventh member, but he recently dropped out. That night, they ride out as Dynamite Dan points out the importance of the number seven and the unluckiness of there only being six of them. They track down the spider until they find it and, forgetting about the saddle and reins on its head, attack. Part 3. Midnight at Miracle Miso The six soldiers fight the spider and Greg finally manages to kill it using a silver bullet. However, a familiar sound takes him back to the first time he fought the spider in 1875 as a group noticed that the spider was a machine. The Bells of Midnight Mesa. As a surreal castle of a whole colours appears in the sky, the group remember where they are. The hunting grounds of the gods. The harrowing begins, and the Sheeda attack. Epilogue, save seven. As the Sheeda declare that no one can stop the harrowing, the seven unknown men begin working on plan B, and create seven new conscripts across time. Very good. It's always hard work synopsizing Grant Morrison, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Let's be brutally honest. Um, if you're expecting me to, to bury him in this episode, you're going to be sadly upset. Yeah. Because this first chapter was actually really quite good, and I really quite enjoyed it. I can't say that about all of them, because it's seven connected miniseries later on. You do have the whole 
some are more interesting than others yeah. aspect of it and a lot of that does come down to some characters are just more interesting than others it's just the way it is but this first chapter was really good first off J.H. Williams the third artwork is splendid yeah the panel layouts it, as well in every it. yeah it's the way he lays it out there is no such thing as a normal panel grid yeah for this man everything is magnificently artistically laid out Every page is a frameable work of art. He even varies his art and the colouring, depending upon which character he's concentrating on. Mm. So the opening two pages in the swamp is gorgeous, and it's very murky and very dark. It's not my favourite because of the murky darkness, but I liked how turn the page and suddenly it's nice and bright and colourful. Yeah as we get into the other characters. And then a great two-page splash of the whip. Excuse me. Do you know what I liked about her? What? While she is wearing bondage gear. Yeah. Let's be honest. That's what it is. Well, it's written by Morrison. It's so. written by Grant Morrison, yeah. So you've got one of his, his, his famed topics there. <laughs> She's a proper woman. Look at her. She's got a belly and hips and yeah. thighs. And she's not stick-figure thin. And it's an incredibly implausible outfit mm. for her to be going crime fighting in. And there are a couple of camera angles where you think, that's a little bit pornographic. Yeah. But other than that, it's 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 nice to see a proper full-figured woman in a comic book. Because mm. if you watch the tennis or watch the wrestling, these women wouldn't be skinny. Yeah. They would have to have some muscle tone and some weight on them to be able to punch a bloke down. The big time country chapter is my favourite in the first one. Oh, yeah. Because he completely changes his art to become a John Ford Western. Mm. So you've got absolutely fantastic panoramic shots of the plains where the horses are. Oh, it is every Clint Eastwood or John Wayne movie you've ever watched. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. Well, drawing like this, I wouldn't mind seeing him do some Jonah Hex. Because mm. what has he done to his art, though? It is not the same as the previous page which whilst does differ from the opening set swamp stuff it's still recognisably J.H. Williams the third but when you get to the cowboy stuff that doesn't look like him that looks like Tim Truman doing Jonah Hex he usually kind of like focuses on the darks Mm. and brings them out a lot more but in this everything's more scratchier yeah it's gorgeous it's absolutely fantastic it looks a lot like um Mobius, Moebius, Ginger Gerard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I like about that is this is standard panel layout. Yeah. Proving that he can do proper standard comic book stuff when he wants to. But he still plays with borders but and he still, like Yeah, he still plays with the borders and the panel layouts are slightly wacky. But it's still a proper grid. Yeah. Like a, an oldie comic book. And... That section was fantastic, but I'm a sucker for westerns anyway when they're done well. It's pretty good when he introduces the other characters and they all have the same, like a different art style in yeah, the same panel. Within the same work, yeah. Like you look at uh, what? Who are the two cowboys? Well, that's the whip. The whip, and that's the vigilante. And the vigilante. They look like they were drawn in the cowboy section. Yeah. Whereas everyone else, gimmicks. Which is a great name. Looks like. A Ryan Suck drawing. It looks like a Ryan Suck drawing. Zatanna. Yeah, and he does differentiate how he draws all the characters on the set. It's very clever. It's really exceptionally good job. Sp- I like the spider. Is he like the shadow? 
Yeah. Pretty much. But yeah, it's it got a little bit confusing towards the end. The panel where they're all sat around the dinner table. I was like, so am I reading across and down or, yeah. or what? So there are times where his, his arty style doesn't work. But for the most part, this was a really good first chapter. It introduces everybody, it sets up what you're going to do, and then it kills them all. Yeah. So you're kind of like, okay, so what are we going to do for the rest of the story then? Mm. If you've killed everybody off in your first issue. There's a little bit of trippy Morrison-ish to it. Yeah. But that's, but that's only really right near the end. Yeah, and it wasn't enough for me to go, Jesus, stop imbibing and tell a story. Sure. It was it was a really good, really interesting first issue. Yeah. And I was like, well, alright, if you carry on like this, I'm probably going to enjoy it. Mm. This was the Morrison I like. Yeah. It's not overly convoluted, but it's, I don't want to say confusing, it's not confusing, but it's complicated enough. Yeah, but not too much. But it's not... It's not depending on you having read another comic that came out at such and such a point and then putting all these together yourself. Yeah. Which, you know, is far too much effort, yeah. quite frankly. I like how it's interconnected already. Like, mm-hmm. even from the first page, you're learning about things that don't get shed light on until later on. Yeah, well, you go a couple of issues now without mentioning the Sheeda. Yeah. Don't you? As they set up, as he introduces the other... Well, character. you do at the beginning of Shining Night. And then you have a little bit where it's not part of it. Yeah. And then, yeah, no, it was a good it was a good beginning. The whole Cyrus Gold stuff, mm. where he kills the children, Ugh. that's brought up again in Zatanna, and you find yeah. out about it in The Guardian. Yeah. So, it was an exceptionally good start. There's a little bit of David Mack to it as well, isn't there? Yeah. To the art. And I don't normally like David Mack. But it, it looks good when J.H. Williams III does it. Mm. So The seven that? unknown men are very definitely Grant Morrison, by the way. What, him personally? Yeah. Uh, That's Do they talk like this? <laughs> Whenever they speak. They don't, but did you not notice how they look like him? Oh, I noticed that they look like him, but I always thought that was just some, some like, Hitchcockian thing. Yeah. Where he just puts himself in every story no, that he does. wait until the last... The very last issue. Right. Because that's a very definite giveaway. Okay, fair enough. Well, he puts himself in Animal Man, so... Yeah, it's not quite as big as that. Uh, Next up is Shining Knight, issue one, The Last of Camelot, by artist Simone Bianchi. I always thought it was Bianchi. It's Bianchi, then. All right. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. We still don't know if it's Manka or Manke. Well, I always thought it was Manke. Right, okay. Manke, aye. (laughs) Grant Morrison pronounces it very well (laughs) when he says Manke. Does it? Aye. You need to do that monkey. It's elongated in the middle. <laughs> That's what I think, anyway. Anyway, do you want to get on and tell the lovely people what the next story is? Be a bit of a waste of them listening if you didn't do that. You're quite done. I'm near done. Oh. I could do this all night. <laughs> Carry on. Colorist Nathan Earing and letterer Rob Lee. The cover shows a man riding a winged horse and wielding a bloody sword. Through his torn street clothes, we see golden armour. What do you make of the cover? I was looking at the splash page. (laughs) I got confused. (laughs) It's easily done. It's a Grant Morrison comic. Uh, It's good. I like it. It's very full. It's a little bit dark. Yeah. It could have done maybe with making the colours pop a little bit. But winged horses are always funny. 
and people with swords are always scary. <laughs> so it works very well. I like it. Where did the logo on that go, on the actual cover? Because it doesn't look like there's anywhere for a logo. I'm assuming at the top. So you think it went behind his head and sword? Maybe. All right. I don't know, because I never... I didn't bother looking it up, because I'm a lazy bugger by and large. <laughs> at Camelot, the night of the round table... Who dance whenever they're able... <laughs> However, they're not able to <laughs> dance as they are fighting against the attacking Sheeda. Lancelot is struck down by Nebula, but calls out to his men to fight on. Watching from above is the queen of the Sheeda, Gloriana Tenebre, who is unaware that a young shining knight named Justin made his way into the castle revolving on his horse Vanguard. He fights through the undead and finds the Undry, the cauldron stolen from Camelot by the Sheeda. From it he pulls Olwen, who was captured by the Sheeda. Gloriana finds them and they fight, but Justin strikes her down and throws the Undry into the green liquid surrounding them that flows through time itself. As he goes to rescue Alwyn, she stabs him, revealing herself to be a changeling. The injured Justin grabs onto Vanguard and the two dive into the liquid in search of the Undry. They smash out of the bottom of the castle and fall down to the ground of an unknown location. As they hit the ground, Vanguard's neck snaps. In a panic, Justin fights off the inspecting police officers but is arrested and placed in the back of a police car as Vanguard's body is left in the street. That was actually quite sad. Uh, first of all, it wasn't a jarring artistic transition from Simone Bianchi to um, from J. H. Williams the Third, sorry, to Simone Bianchi. Mm. They actually do complement each other. It also helps that, like we pointed out, J. H. Williams the Third draws each character as the artist who draws them will draw them. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Mm. So that was nice. So it wasn't jarring artistically that it swapped over. Uh, secondly, I'm always a sucker for Knights of the Round Table. Excalibur's a great movie, so always fun seeing the Knights of the Round Table come in. The opening splash page is good. Camelot falls, kind of. And then two pages of fighting. And then more fighting. And then more fighting. And it's brilliant. (laughs) It's an absolutely fantastic opening. It's a bit blood-soaked. But no more egregious than you get in many modern books now and it's largely the blood is just flying off people's swords it's not overly violent on panel Mm. given the amount of gore and splatter that's going on Justin's he's a little bit of a wimp compared to the other ones yeah isn't he well do you not know the plot twist yet what's the plot twist well I won't ruin it for you no well I've not finished I'm so because I'm reading it through the trade, yeah. I've not read the back end of this but yet. if you know what happens reading it again, it's quite obvious. Right, okay, well, when I get there, we can talk about that next time. He's betrayed by Gloriana Tenebre. No, she's the Sheeta Queen. She He's is. betrayed by Alwyn. She looks, that's the one. I, yeah, I'm getting them all mixed up. It, she looks a little bit like the Borg Queen from Star Trek First Contact. Yeah. Which I thought was a nice touch. But the two-page splash of him falling out of what is that the castle revolving is excellent because it's two page it looks like a Terry Pratchett thing Mm. how he describes a Terry Pratchett thing it's hovering in mid-air it looks a little bit insecty yeah with castles and, and stuff growing out of it and they fall out of one of the sacks underneath and they're over our earth and the horse landed and breaking his neck was really quite sad mm I liked Vanguard. You can't kill that. Nobody likes it when you kill the animals, dude. 
The dog has to survive, <laughs> even in Independence Day. Where it's where it's really stupid. Yeah, I love the ending. Where even though these people live in the DC universe, a flying horse is still something that you don't see every day. Yeah, and they cart this guy off to to jail. Yeah, this one was good as well. Mm. Not as good as the opening. Yeah, I didn't think. Yeah, I'm not a really big fan of the Shannon Knight stuff. I, mean, I liked this opening issue of him more than I liked subsequent issues of that minute. Yeah. I mean, I've only read the second one so far. I'm not a big fan of the art as well. It's alright. There are some bits where it's really good, but it's just too... It's too muddy and too scratchy. It is a little bit dark in the... I mean, I don't know, is that the colouring or the actual art? Because the art has got a lot of shading and, and darkness to it. It's painted, I think. Yeah, so... Well, see, to me, it looks like it's pencilled paint. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's inked. It, it does very much like shading has been done with pencil. Mm. So whether or not he's pencilled it really tightly and then gone to paint it, I don't know. But he doesn't colour it, does he? No. So He does grey tones. Right, so... You know, see, I didn't mind it. I didn't. It's a little bit stiff in places. But it, it it tells you story sequentially in a good way. You're never looking at it going, what the hell's that? Yeah. And you're never looking at it either thinking, well, that's a good poster. Mm. It's all forwarding the story, which I quite like. It was good. So, so far, we're batting two for two. Yeah. Where's, where's the Andy Morrison rant coming from? <laughs> where's that going to happen? It ain't. Next. Guardian 1 follows with Pirates of Manhattan by artist Cameron Stewart. Colorist... Is he, is he the one who signed it for you? Yeah. Right, I was wondering who signed your cover. Yeah, you can't exactly tell, it's just a scribble. Yeah, well, it, it's a, it's a recognisable C, and that's about it. Yeah. I was wondering why somebody had swore in the cover of your book, but, you know, whatever. The second hardback, hardback's got a better signature. By the same guy? No. Oh. You see? Oh, right, I will, yeah. yeah. Um... Colorist Moose Bowman. Moose Bowman. Bowman. Yes. And letterer Pat Brossard. You're on your own with that one. The cover shows the new Manhattan Guardian leaping through a newspaper. The paper's headlines is Pirates and also features a story on a clay golem. Mmm. And thus a major plot point cometh. A minor plot point. Alright, a minor plot point. Is this Guardian the same Guardian that used to be in the Superman comics? No. I know he's a different guy. Yeah. But is he the same identity? Well, the, the other line of dialogue that says the newspaper bought it off the army when they sold the R&D division the well, project. Well, I thought Star Labs, or was it Cadmus, owned Guardian? Not Maybe they bought it off Cadmus. They do pay it some lip service. Yeah, they just basically, here's a line of dialogue explaining it, bye. Yeah. Um, I, this was my favourite one. Was it? Until I got to Zatanna. Right. I really like the Guardian storyline. It's it's a little bit gory when it opens. You've got, who are these pirate people? Uh, a two-page splash of them just hacking away. Well, should we do the synopsis first? At port- oh, yeah, we've not done the synopsis, <laughs> have we? Oh, dear me. How long have we been doing this? Uh, uh, sometime. All right. I'll tell the lovely listener what the story is, and then we can move on with the actual discussion <laughs> of the comic book. That one was crap. I don't know what that one was. A man sits in the underground train station, panicking. <laughs> a train with a skull painted on it stops at the station, and pirates emerge, killing everyone in sight. The captain of the train, Nobeard, finds the panicking man, Soapy, in search of the map of New York's secret subway that was made back in the day of Captain Falsebeard's day. Later, 
outside of a grocery store, Jake Jordan argues with his girlfriend over money problems. She leaves him and meets back up with her parents and tells them that Jake is making his own way home. Her dad leaves the car and meets up with Jake who is sitting on a bench and hands him a copy of the Guardian newspaper. Inside is a job offer for ex-police military men to become the Guardian. The next day, Jake is dropped off outside Guardian Heights and enters. At the desk, the two receptionists pull out guns, but Jake quickly disarms them and heads for the elevator. The head of Ed Stargard, the owner of the Guardian, appears on screen and informs Jake that he's arrived in the middle of a terrorist strike. He makes his way up in the elevator, but when it opens up, he's attacked by a clay golem. Knowing about the Movie Monsters trading card series, Jake knows its weakness and wipes away the writing on its head. He takes down the remaining terrorists and meets Stargard in his office. Stargard is ahead on a screen who tells Jake that the whole incident was a staged test for the interview and that Jake is perfect for the job. After Tyree Plantain, a young boy Jake killed back in his police days who he mistook as the drug dealer who had just shot his partner, Jake has been unstable, but this job, becoming a living masthead for the Guardian, would be perfect for both Jake and the newspaper. On Jake's first day as the Guardian, he takes the Guardian mobile for a spin, but it breaks down just as a story about gangs of homeless tunnel dwellers attacking the N-Line comes in. Realising that Carla, his girlfriend, and Larry, her dad, are on the line, Jake sets off on a bike given to him by a member of the Newsboy Army. Jake makes it into the subway as Allbeard sets Soapy alight for giving Nobeard the subway map. Allbeard takes Carla and the others as hostages and kills Larry. But with no time to grieve, Jake grabs onto a dangling chain as the train speeds off. Like I was saying before it was pointed out to me that we actually hadn't covered the synopsis. This was my favourite one in the opening section until we got to Zatanna. Because it's, it's, well, it's a standard superhero story. Yeah. He does mention, I think what I was expecting when he says, The Guardian bought the trademark from some R&D vision called The Project. It was the Cadmus Project. Right. So they just don't mention Cadmus. So maybe he wasn't allowed to know the name Cadmus or whatever, I don't know. But it's a, it's, a, it's a standard superhero story. Yeah. It's a standard superhero origin story. A little bit violent in places, but that's fine. Um... And Morrison's just telling a standard superhero story and doing it very well. Hmm. There's nothing here, there's no trademark weirdness in this one. There's a little bit with the pirates. Yeah, they're just a wacky gang. There's there's more of Morrison's weirdness in the second issue with yes, the pirates. Yes, there is. But this first one is just a straight-up superhero origin tale. We all know how to get rid of a golem because we've read Incredible Hulk comics. Okay. So we know how to get rid of the golem. There's something very, very creepy about the guy with the head. Who's called Ed. Who's called Ed, which is a bit strange. And obviously he's got a tragic backstory, because he's a superhero character. They have to have tragic backstories. Yeah. That's the way of things. But it, that, that, this one was really good. Yeah. The artwork's standard superheroism. Mm. And Morrison packs an awful lot into this issue. Yeah. I was quite surprised. It hits home a lot more than the other ones. It's a yeah, lot it's a lot more personal. relatable, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I like the Guardian Mobile. <laughs> that just breaks out. <laughs> it just breaks. Because <laughs> he's not got Bruce Wayne funding him, obviously. <laughs> I mean, Bruce Wayne could fix it himself. But... And it's got a really good cliffhanger ending. Mm. Which made me a little bit disappointed when I turned the page and I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. This doesn't work like this, does it? 
I've got issue one of another miniseries now. I liked it. I liked how it mixes two concepts with the Guardian and the Newsby. Mm. And the news, well, the Newsby Legion were a Cadmus thing as well. Were they? So he's dealing I with. That was um, a Jimmy Olsen thing. Well, they were made by Cadmus in right. the '90s Superman stuff. So he is using a lot of Jack Kirby bits mm. in this, and then just doing his own thing with them, which is perfectly fine. Yeah, I really, I liked that one a lot. I thought that one was very entertaining. Mm. And then we get to the next one, which I thought was better. <laughs> <laughs> But that was good. Yeah. I liked how he packed an awful lot into it. I liked that that one read just like a standard superior origin, proving that he can do that kind of stuff when he wants to. Mm. I really liked the pirates. Yeah. False beard, all beard, no beard. Yeah, which is a great name. <laughs> yeah. That was an absolutely fantastic name. I did like, as well, that after I got used to it, what you're doing here is essentially just cross-cutting between each story. Yeah. So you get the cliffhanger ending here. At first it's a bit jarring in the trade paper, well, the hardcover, whatever, that you turn the next page and suddenly it's a quiet scene with Zatanna sitting on a chair. Mm. And you're a bit disappointed in it. But then later on, when you start getting into it, and you start going, well, actually what he's doing is just a novel. Yeah. So this chapter of the novel is about this guy, and the next chapter, and then we'll come back to this later. Mm. And it does actually work very well. One of the best like bits is the um, Guardian-Clarion crossover with the train passing through. Oh, right, yeah. I, have I got to that yet? Yeah, yeah. It's in the second issues. Yes, so it is. I thought I'd, that sounded vaguely familiar. I'm up to Clarion 3, aren't I? Yeah. Clarion the Witch by Bad Bomb Bomb. You can't do that now if you've heard Peter David's Young Justice. Can you not? Because every time you introduce him at Clarion, the witch boy, bum, bum, bum! Okay. Well, I thought it was funny, anyway. Did you like that? Did you? It's a bit stupid me asking, do you like this, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's a foregone conclusion. Why did you not get Grant Morrison to sign this? Um, I... Would that not have been cool to have Cameron Stewart and Grant Morrison sign the same thing? I guess, but I was thinking, if I'm only ever going to meet him once... Is going to be the Invisibles. Alright. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Third is. Uh, next up is Zatanna issue one, Talking Backwards, which was by artist Ryan Souk with inker Mick Gray, colorist Nathan Eyring, and letterer Jared K. Fletcher. The cover by Souk shows Zatanna in shock as she is surrounded by lots of white rabbits that are jumping out of her hat. Yeah. Because she's a magician, rabbits yeah, out. Yeah. The rabbits look a little bit scary with their really red eyes. They do, yeah. It's good cover, that. I like Ryan Souk stuff. I like how he draws Zatanna. Yeah. She's very fresh-faced and normal-looking, especially in the, the issue as you actually go forward. Yeah, mm. I like that. I like, I like that she's the only thing that's coloured. All the rabbits being white are just, well, white, apart from the red eyes and the little twitchy noses. <laughs> they got the happy eight legs and twitchy little noses. And what's with all the carrots? Why do they need such good eyesight for anyone? Bunnies. Must be bunnies. Or maybe midgets. Yeah. <laughs> Satana Zatari is a spellaholic in the shadows of her father. At a self-help group for superheroes with low self-esteem, she tells the story. On the seventh day of Arachne, the secret 13th month of the Sorcerer's Calendar at Baron Winter's mansion, a group of sorcerers, Timothy Ravenwind, Mr. Invincible, Tyre, Doctor 13 and Zatanna herself, are all having nightmares of armies of locusts being rowed by tiny armies. They gather round a table and follow Zatanna into an imaginal world. They find themselves in the inter-reality of Ra with their host King Ramen, not the noodles. We cannot go with them, <laughs> but can open up the depths of the infrastructures below. 
They travel through the infrastructures, but all of them sense something bad about it. Suddenly the walls around them start burning until Zatanna opens up a portal that takes them to a tree. The tree has books for leaves, every book ever and never written. On the tree, Zatanna finds her father's four lost books, but before she can reach them, she's met by the perfect man for her, who she had drunkenly summoned a few nights prior. When she woke up at the table in Winter's mansion, she was surrounded by burned bodies. After the meeting, a young girl named Misty asks to become Zatanna's apprentice and summons a taxi for them. Misty is Paul Dini's wife, presumably. Because Misty Lee is Paul Dini's wife, who is a magician. Yeah. Who dresses like Zatanna. Fair enough. So I presume that's a nod to Paul yeah. Dini's missus, in many ways. I like this one. I like the art. I think the art's lovely, by Ryan Sook. There's a couple of places where it gets really quite wacky Morrison stuff. Yeah. For the most part, Sook does this as standard panel grids, and then all of a sudden in the middle, it just turns into into four double-page splashes of madness that works yeah. because it's surrounded by regular stuff. I really liked her. I really liked uh, Zatanna. I really liked Misty. I'm not too sure about the spellaholic thing. No, I wasn't either. Because that not that kind of saying that her powers are a drug? And wasn't that a metaphor that we, we did to death on Buffy? Where Willow started getting into dark magic, and they suddenly, suddenly Buffy lost all semblance of subtlety. Yeah. In saying, "Look, the metaphor is drugs, kids. Drugs are bad, okay?" <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, Josh, do you remember in the first three seasons where your metaphors were subtle? Can we not get back to that, please?" I think it comes from the fact that she used it selfishly and drunkenly, and now the whole world's going to be destroyed because of it. Right. Okay. So she needs to recover. Yeah. And I like Zatara. Yeah, I, I like this bit with the TV show. How he has the audience in, in the palm of his hands, they just don't know it. Yeah, because I do love that the, the, he's just been a little bit of a buffoon at the beginning of the story. Yeah. But it's all part of the act. And then he turns them all into rabbits, which is very funny. Mm. The Spellaholics Anonymous group are, you know, a bit dull. We have gimmicks again. Yeah, gimmicks shows up. And there are a few others who appear again in the bulleteer. Oh, right, yeah. I don't think I've got to the bulleteer no. yet. So, right, so pay attention to those people. Well, you really have to pay attention, but they show up again. Right. I love the panel. There's no page numbers, lovely listener. Sorry about that. But there's a lovely panel where Zatanna's remembering her dad. And her dad's just in the background in what looks like flamey mists. Yeah. Whereas she's very... Mm, I remember Daddy. And that's a lovely panel. And he does an exceptionally good job. He changes his art style when they go to... Is that Arcane? Baron Winter they go and see, yeah. don't they? When they go and see Baron Winter, his art style changes. Did you not think? It yeah. becomes a lot heavier and darker. Which works... It's- it's like 90s Vertigo Lovecraftian. It's like Penny Dreadful, is what it's like. Yeah. If you've never watched that, it's like the seance in Penny Dreadful. So, who's this guy? Oh, that's King Raman. King Raman, not the noodles. Not the no- He's got noodles for her, apparently. <laughs> I did like that Raman joke. <laughs> that, was, that was very funny. Yeah, th- this then became my favourite one. 
Yeah. Because it is just the right mix of weird. It's a little bit Doctor Strange. This has been the most out there so far, and that's usually our big complaint. Yeah, but Zatanna's such an engaging character. Yeah. And how she approaches all this weirdness is your way in as an audience member. Hmm. Because to her, while it's not commonplace... Uh, sorry, while it's not everyday life, it's not commonplace enough to her for her to be blasé about it. Yeah. Which is always my problem with the weirdness stuff. It feels like the weirdness is shoehorned in hmm. for the sake of being weird. Whereas Zaytana's world would get weird, but how she relates to it makes me relate to it better. Yeah. Because she's always very world-weary and, oh, God, about it, isn't she? Hmm. Which is quite nice. I liked it. I did like the Zaytana. I love the panel where she's just surrounded by skeletons at the seance. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure about the red bow tie with the busty ear. I don't know that that's a good look. <laughs> but I'm not here to criticise her um, her sartorial style. I love the title of her book, Hex Appeal. Yeah. That's Zatanna's biography. Hex Appeal. Well, that's, that's good. with with a red collar and a busty ear like that. Yeah, I like it. I like that. I, I would buy that book. <laughs> I like Hex Appeal a great deal. Yeah, what did you think of the Zaytana one? I, I liked it, but I still couldn't get over the whole spellaholic thing. Yeah, um, that is kind of treating her power as if it's a bad thing, isn't it? Yeah. But but it is only the, the it's only the start of the issue, really, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't really take you anywhere. But as much as I like Zatanna, I'm not so big on Morrison's interpretation of her. Really not? It's not my favourite of the lot. Paul Dini? No, I mean, it's not my favourite Seven Soldiers of the Lord. Oh, right, see, I really like that one, and I really liked Guardian. Yeah. And I really like the opening chapter. And although the Silver, what's it, what was he called? Shining Knight. Silver Shining Knight wasn't my favourite, it was still engaging and entertaining. Yeah. It's only when we get to the next chapter, I was like, oh dear. You're not a big fan of Clarion. I didn't like the Clarion stuff much, no. It, I think Clarion's a grower, or at least I really like the later stuff. Yeah, well, I think reading it, comparing it to the other ones, the other ones were more favourites than the Clarion stuff, but there is a good moment in the Clarion stuff later on. Yeah. Issue. Have I got to issue two? Yeah, I must have read issue two, because I'm up to part three, aren't I? The last two issues of Clarion are actually really dark. Mm, well, it starts off moderately dark. Yeah. Anyway... Tickle the cat. <laughs> yeah. I like Tickle the cat. Who's the most colour in the entire book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's a goth kid, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Very definitely. Clarion the Witch Boy, issue bum, one. Bum, bum. From this world to that which is to come. Was by Freezer Irving and letterer Pat Brossow. The cover shows Cla- Clarion and his cat, Tickle, surrounded by the undead Grundies. Solomon Grundy. Yeah. Dead on a Monday. Was it lives on a Monday? Was it born on a Monday? I've no idea. It's one of them. He died on the Tuesday. Yeah, so he must have been born on the Monday then, wasn't he? Yeah. Can't die before he's been born. That wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it was alright. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that one. I don't like his hair. It proportionally looks a bit off. The cat's nice. In that way that the cat isn't at all nice because he's going... <laughs> ah, yeah. But, uh... Fraser yeah. is just... One of those artists who you either like or don't like. Is he is he Marmite? I think so. He's yeah. he's definitely grown on me a lot more. All right. Than right. when I first read his stuff. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't not like it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I didn't go into this expecting to hate it because hmm. I don't go into anything expecting to hate it. But like, I didn't really think much of the X Men. 
but this was quite pleasant. Yeah. For a Grant Morrison story, anyway. I mean, he's never nasty. He's not like Mark Miller, is he? No. He doesn't go out of his way to be deliberately nasty. So, no, so far, it's been all right. Keep going. Clarion is a young witch boy who dreams of leaving the cave world of Croatoan, where the dead are dug up and used as Grundy slaves. Clarion dreams of going through the wicket gates and into the world above like his real father did years ago. A submissionary Judah breaks a Grundy, Clarion's cat, Tekel, catches a Sheeda in its mouth. Judah sees the dead Sheeda and announces to all that their sins have found them out. Whilst out with the Grundy, Clarion's stepdad tells him of the tunnels past the Mahai market where he found a chocolate bar and shows him the wrapper that amazes him. The bells call them back for church, where Judah tells the congregation that the witch gods want them to close the wicket gate forever and for the people to hide. Afterwards, Clarion's stepdad takes the Grundy out to the market as Tekel heads off to cause mischief, where he spies the submissionary summoning the Horrigal to fight off the enemies of Croatoan. Seeing through Teagle's eyes, Clarion rushes off to the market to warn the farmers of the submissionaries, but when he reaches there, he is met by dead bodies and the Horrigal itself. Uh, I did love the Kit Kat bit. The yeah. chocolate bit with the Kit Kat, where he says, um, This cake of light was not made to last long in our solid world, but I defied the submissionaries and ate it, and they kept its miraculous, imperishable covering that I might remember its sweetness. And there's a little bit of it left in the wrapper and Clarion's, what is this stuff made of? What hand made such a wonder? It's a Kit Kat. Yeah. That was funny. Mm. And it was a moment of levity in an otherwise incredibly dark issue that is all about devil worship, essentially. And Yeah, the, the metaphor in this one isn't all It's that not that metaphorical. Yeah. In many ways. Um, I actually thought this one was really quite talky, though. Yeah. I mean, I get that it needs to be. But it felt that even though essentially the Zatanna one was her sat at a drunken Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, mm. so there was a lot of talkie in that, it felt like the talkie was interrupted by the action very well because it was her telling a story, wasn't it? Yeah. So the narrative drive of having them sitting in a circle telling each other their problems was assisted by the fact that every page something cool and wacky happened. Yeah. Whereas this, I mean, it was it's always nice seeing Solomon Grundy. Mm. Or a Solomon Grundy, not the Solomon Grundy. But I did, I just thought this one was very talky and just a bit flat. I, I kind of liked it. I really liked the, the dark religious. Oh, yeah. Stuff there's, very, there's some very. And the, the, the guy who's pounding on the, pu- the, pu- the. What are they called? Pupil, pupit. Whatever. It'll that. come back to me, yeah. The what table at the front. Yeah, the table at the front. <laughs> and uh, the ending was good. Yeah. The ending was quite nice and shocking. But, no, I thought this one was a bit talky. I liked that about it. I mean, there's... Oh, I, I'll have a bigger complaint about one of them later on. Which but one? given that all the other ones had been such a good introduction... Yeah. This one felt like it slowed down a bit. I like so I get why it needed to. Of all of them, Clarion's... The witch boy, bum bum bum, his story is arguably the hardest to relate to. Yeah. As a, a 21st century reader, isn't it? Because he's very colonial, isn't he? Yeah. In what he's wearing and all of that stuff. Well, I like that it's Croatoan, which is the town that disappeared. Yeah. So, I mean, he talks about the Books of Shadows, which just makes me think of Charmed. <laughs> Shannon Doherty's going to wander in at any minute. <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't... I didn't at any point think this is god-awful and tear it away. 
Yeah. I just thought it wasn't as good a first chapter as the other minis, which did a good job of blending their exposition with their action. Yeah. And this one is all talky until the last page when you get a nice big cliffhanger. I really liked it because of that. Yeah, no, it's valid. Yeah. But I think just because of the way it's been printed, you're expecting it to be building up to something. Yeah. And then you kind of take a a minute's interlude here. Well, stuff's happening, and it's dark and witchcrafty and funny. Mm. Particularly the Kit Kat stuff. Yeah. But talky. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing, I suppose, but, you know. Anyway, we're getting to issue two of everything now, don't we? Well, fun fact before we move on. Mm. Uh, Clarin the Witch Boy, Kirby character, yeah. was a girl. Was he? Mm. I don't know, he wasn't a girl in Young Justice, I don't think. No, then the uh, Kirby stuff, yeah. So is this a different Clarion the Witch Boy? Uh, Why was he Clarion the Witch Boy then? Wait until the end. Alright, so the twist is coming. A twist is Alright, fair enough. Shining Knight, issue 2, Mood 7, Mind Destroyer, as a cover of a close-up of Justin the Shining Knight. Yeah, it looks like, um, well, first off, Justin looks like a girl. Right. Big lips. Yeah. Heavy eyeliner. Right. Nice eyelashes. Okay. I would have said that was a girl. Fair enough. I mean, it's not a bad cover of a girl, (laughs) but of a boy, it looks like a girl. Unless it's an anime boy. Right. With the big eyes and the big red lips who always look like girls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe the people who, who like anime in Japan or, or is it China? Is it Japan? Japan it's Japan, yeah. isn't it? Are they not confused? <laughs> I think... Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> it would explain a lot about anime. I'd, I'd find it really funny that if they actually hated anime and manga in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they do. I think they're quite fond of it. It's, it's a good piece of art, but I can't, I'm looking at it going, oh... She's a bit hot. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, it's a boy. Wait, oh, I am so confused. <laughs> oh no, my life is a lie. It's uh, a good art. Yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you noticed how the issue twos, or at least in this one anyway, are all of headshots? Are they? I did not notice that when I was Actually, no, it. thinking about it now, every single issue two is a headshot. That's obviously. Guardian is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, didn't they do this a month at DC in the 90s? Yeah. Every issue had a headshot of somebody. Yeah, Zatanna is as well. Yeah, do you know, when reading this, I did not notice that, but you're absolutely right. Let's have a look at Clarion. This is fascinating podcasting. Oh, yeah. All good covers as well, though, these ones. Yeah. There is something quite impressive about the... Uh, and is that it for... Is Clarion the end one? Yeah. Yeah, because then you go back to Shining Night, don't you? Mm. Hey, do you know, I did not notice that. Well spotted. I only, I only noticed it doing the notes... Is this this cover is of a headshot. And then you went, this cover is it? And you're like, wait a minute, can I just copy and paste? Justin escapes from the back of the police car, but he takes a shot to the chest. He gets back up with the chain mail having taken most of the shots and takes his sword from the car. After managing to escape, he wanders the strange city. Later, he is greeted by Guilt, a Shida Mood 7 mind destroyer that kills with words. Guilt tells Justin of the story of how the Shida won and Camelot fell, how they killed everyone and then used them as undead slaves, how everyone Justin loved has been dead for thousands of years, how the story might have been different had Justin not run away. Elsewhere, Vincenzo, the undying Don, is introduced to a winged horse that fell from the sky with glass but no rider. As he feeds the horse, he is stabbed in the back by something unseen. One of his men uses a robotic eye to see Nebula riding the buffalo spider. Back in the city, 
Justin searches through garbage for food with guilt following him. He sits on a bench next to a man who is being harassed by a couple of thugs. Justin stands up to them, taking one down with a trash can and pulls his sword out on the one aiming a gun. Having beaten the thugs, Justin's despair and self-loathing is gone, and guilt vanishes. He sits back down next to the man and notices that his armour has changed to regular clothes. You won't have to fight alone, the man says, before grabbing his hat and stepping onto a bus. Sorry, I was engrossed in looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> I got quite into it again. Grant Morrison's in this issue. He's in the next one as well. Quite clearly Grant Morrison. It's not, though, but oh the artist God. seems to draw all bald men as Grant as, Morrison. As Grant Morrison. Yeah, I like, I've this followed uh, on quite well from issue one. And I like the, the really weird mixture of the really wacky stuff with Justin falling from above and him going for a walk with, uh, with guilt. Yeah. Just wandering through the streets of New York with this big monster. Which was quite funny, but yeah. it wasn't meant to be. No, with, with lots of eyes. Yeah, I, I love the, the, the series of panels of him just walking down the street, grinning. Yeah, he was quite funny. And yeah. like you said, I don't know if it was supposed to be. And I think he was not dead. Thank yeah. God's not dead. Which How? Was nice. We don't know. No, Unless no. he's the cauldron. Yeah, it's entirely. Oh, they're talking to a Lazarus pit and it suddenly gave him the knowledge of who Batman's secret identity was. For no <laughs> readily explained reason. Okay. It was good. I like the art in this one. Although, again, it, is it Seaman Bianchi who just does dark art? Yeah. The dark arts. <laughs> That's what he practices. Um, yeah, I don't really have a lot on that one. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, there's a lot of this that crosses over into, into Zatanna. Well, there's a lot of little bits in all of them that you're noticing. I've just read something about that. Yeah, but this... Especially the whole Don Vincenzo and the Vincenzo. the guy with the hat who he sees at the end. That's mm. they play big parts in Satana. Right when we go along. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Like the guy with the hat is in the next issue of Satana covering. Yes. Mm-hmm. But we get my neck. But back to one of my favourites next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is Guardian issue two, Homeless Superior. Which has a cover of a close-up of the Guardian. Yeah, but on this one, he's actually looking back at you over his shoulder. So it's not just a close-up of his face. Is he looking at us, or is he looking... He's looking at something. Yeah. From over his shoulder. Probably the train that's coming after him. It's probably the weakest of the headshot covers. You know, I I find his helmet kind of implausible, because it makes his head look a lot more smaller. Well, a helmet like that would be implausible in the sense that what's keeping it on? Yeah. It's not like it's strapped underneath like a motorcycle helmet or anything, is yeah. it? Yeah, but it still looks like his head's a lot smaller than it yeah. is. Yeah, well, when you put it on, it's like the Iron Man things. When you put the Iron Man head on, people always just drew the head normal size. Yeah. So it's like, does Tony Stark have a peanut head? <laughs> the Iron Man helmet should be a little bit bigger. Yeah. But, you know. Jake desperately holds on to the train, but Allbeard cuts it, and the train drives through a wall of solid rock. When all seems lost for Jake, Nobeard's train arrives, and Jake takes it as the train passes through the wall and runs over something that looks like a horrigal. The train catches up to Allbeard's, and Jake jumps the trains to save Carla. He detaches the cars, and the trains fall off the tracks into the depths below. Jake and the surviving hostages manage to escape as Nobeard chases Allbeard into a radioactive room where the six-sided god machine is. But all they find is a single die. After Larry's funeral, Jake is faced with guilt for his death. But Stargard tells him that if he quits now, then Larry's death would have been in vain. 
Elsewhere, people tell stories of a ghost that still haunts the subways, but it's only just a homeless man, sick and soon to die, and certainly not no beard. No, absolutely not. <laughs> That's actually, do you know, he looks like the Crypt Keeper. He does, yeah. On the last panel of that, though. This was another one that was really, I, did, I could have done without the rats being cut in half. Yeah. On the first page. But there's a very 30s or 40s serial vibe to him being pulled along behind the train while the skeletons are all burning at the side of him. Mm. Which is, I like the cliffhanger. I mean, he just kind of falls off, which is a bit of a shame. You kind of hoped that he would get off. And it clearly looks like he's broken his neck. It looks like he's broken his arm in that panel. In one of those, because he's not super, is he? No. There's nothing particularly superheroic or superpowered about him. But, again, this it was more like a standard superhero, although the pirates really are quite wacky. Yeah. I like them. Why are they calling the train President Clinton? Because he, he says he can call it whatever he wants to. <laughs> so he calls it President Clinton? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. A god train. All beard is black beard, though. With the dynamite in his beard. Mm. The train ramming at each other. There's some excellent fight scenes in it. Yeah. I like the fight scenes. This is quite meaty. Mm. I quite like the Guardian miniseries. It's a pity they didn't tie it more closely into the Cadmus stuff. <laughs> Dice Rescue, did this woman have a broken net before? Yeah. It was very funny. There were some quite funny bits in it. Does he actually manage to save anybody? He, he saves the... <laughs> yeah, he saves Carla and the guy who runs the cinema. Alright, well done. So he saves the regular cast. The reg- he saves one regular cast member and he has to save someone else as well. Well, yeah. Fair enough. Are there any interesting names on the uh, gravestone? Didn't notice any. No, I didn't notice any that uh, that spoke out. Bluth, is that a ref- Arrested Development reference? Don't know. I don't know. Could be. I don't know. And what are they doing to him when they're operating on him? Fixing his broken neck. Oh, right. <laughs> and that weird head thing is just... That, I, I kind of like it. The, uh, yeah. I, it's not at all suspicious. No. In, I, I like how everyone reading a newspaper is reading The Guardian. It's the best-selling newspaper in the land now that they've got a superhero. Well, yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, it was good, that one. Yeah, I like the crossover with Clarion and this one. They just, But it, it kind of spoils the, the cliffhanger for Clarion for you. Why? Well, if you're reading this... Mm, as it's published in here. Yeah. Right? The Horrigal attacks Clarion. Yes, that was the cliffhanger ending for Clarion. And then you're reading this, and they don't... It doesn't, really. it doesn't give it away. No, but if you know what that is... Yeah, well, they just see it on the train track. Yeah. And so, then, but then you read the Clarion and you're like, oh, okay. Which took place many, many years ago. No, it didn't. The Clarion one? Yeah. I thought the Clarion one took place in the past. It takes place now. Does it? When they run over the train in this issue is when they run over the train in the next issue when he meets up with... Evan oh, right, I'm going back. Right, sorry, you're referring to the next issue of Clarion. Yeah. Right, sorry, I'm going back going, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yes, he's there, isn't he, when you turn the page and you turn and look at the guy who's with Clarion who looks an awful lot like Russell Brand. Yeah. Yes. All right, no, I was confusing it with the last issue. And then sorry. The, the room where they I'm find the, the die yeah. is where they pass through in the next one and they talk about the god with the chains. Mm. Right, sorry, I was going backwards, not forwards. Yeah. You're referring to events that have not happened yet. Yes. Right, sorry. 
that, I like the, the the end of this as well, where Noby had survived. <laughs> yeah, as the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> yeah. Which he just, totally is. I find it funny that he's just this train going around the, the New York subway with just this ghost this pirate guy. Is that not a, a urban legend, though? that not tying into an urban legend about the ghostly train well sure I've heard that the before. urban legend in this one where they're on about crocodiles in the sewers yeah well, you get a clarion and you ride a crocodile through the sewers that's a popular one isn't it yeah and of course it's real in, in comic books well is the Guardian newspaper not our weekly world news do we get the weekly world news we don't. America does. Oh right is it not right, I thought you meant we got it no no it's now out of print and exists as a Website. Oh, is it all digital now? Yeah. Right, okay, I don't know. But that's essentially what it is. The the Guardian has stories that are kind of silly like that. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Mm. Next. Uh, Zatanna, issue two. A book in the beginning, which has a <laughs> close-up of Zatanna. Yeah, well, she's doing that rubbing the brim of her hat yeah. thing that people do when they put hats on. I really, that like one, that one. I really like that one. I like the fact that it's all a dark colour apart from a blue eye. Yeah. That's very reminiscent of those 90s covers where it was just a shot of people's faces. Mm. It was good though. Zatanna and Misty head for a magic store that belongs to Cass, a friend of Zatanna's. On the way there, they are followed by Gwydion, Zatanna's perfect man. When they reach the store, they find Cass terrified of the shapeless one that follows them. Zatanna finds a hat, and Cass tells her that it belonged to a man who came in the other day, asking Cass to tell Zatanna that he wants the books. She also finds the cabinet of Ali Kazoom that was connected to the Newsboy Army murder case many years ago. The shapeless one makes his way into the shop through a book and becomes a cat. Zatanna kicks the other two out to fight it, but struggles to fight something that is shapeless. Misty uses her magic die to make it become solid, and Zatanna traps it into the mirror of reality before smashing it. You keep getting to the end of the synopsis before I get to the end of the comic, which is very sad. Um, As I said, the Zatanna one quickly became my favourite. I like that Zatanna tells Misty that, you know, there's more to superhero and then getting a cape and becoming famous. What is it with the American Idol generation? Yeah. Which this idea of just being famous for the sake of it, which I quite liked. I like that throughout the book, or at least for the opening, the the guy following them is in every single panel. Yeah, uh, he's he's a big cloud in panel two where they're crossing the San Francisco Bridge, and he's in the raindrops, and he's in the sea, and where is oh he's in the rocks? Yeah, I didn't notice him in the rocks before. Yeah, it's absolutely that is really quite subtle as well. And is is he in the cloud formation? Yes, he is. He's in the cloud. Where is he though? No, I don't think he is. Or is it only the first two pages and then briefly afterwards? Yeah, the guy who's following him. All the stuff in the magic shop's quite cool, and again, very buffy. It's the magic box. Because they, yeah, because they had the magic box. What's it called in this? I don't know. Does it have a different name? No. I don't know. I like, and Zatanna's really funny. It's not so great to be called the shapeless one. Yeah. Which I thought was quite interesting. And she goes around just testing on hats. That like the crossbow they have as well that talks to them. And the cat's name is Prowley. Yeah. Because it's a cat and Alistair Crowley and that link yeah. though, which I thought was quite clever. I like again it's very mundane Doctor Strange stuff. It's Cheers John Constantine. Isn't she? I guess, yeah. Except she's kind of a bit more glamorous because she's in San Francisco. Yeah. And he's not at all glamorous because he's in Liverpool. <laughs> or London, whichever you prefer. There's some... The dialogue's funny. Doc Prowley. And I like that the third rule of magic is pretty much the same as the first rule of magic. 
All the rules. There is no budget. Yeah, there isn't any, and it's uh, it's great. And Ryan Sook's art's brilliant. Yeah, which I thought was quite impressive. I liked that as well. Earlier on, she said the Phantom Stranger went out for bread about three years ago. Yeah, two years ago. Two years ago, and then when they get to the end, he comes back and did you want wheat or was it sourdough? (laughs) So he's been away for three years, then he walks in, but he's remembered to pick up the bread. I love he says Stranger things has happened, and then he just comes in. Does someone say Stranger? (laughs) So Phantom, so is he just going to show up like in Legends? Yeah. And just stand around and watch and drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. Or do you think he's going to be more important in this story than he was in that one? He's not. No, alright, <laughs> fair enough. He shows up there because it's funny and that's it. Yeah, it is funny. And does he not have anything else to do? <laughs> Apparently not. Alright, fair enough. Okay. He was off talking to Darkseid for two years. Yeah. <laughs> that's where he was. <laughs> in between going for the bread and coming back from the bread. Legends took place. Yeah, post-crisis legends. Yeah, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah, and, and on this one there's the, the connections again with the Alakazoom box and Cyrus Gold and the Newsboy. Yeah. Um, so that connects to the... Why guy. are they not the Newsboy Legion in this like they were in the Kirby stuff? That, I don't know. Because he just changed them. Yeah, Maybe they just updated themselves. Hmm. And uh, is that naked hovering guy, is that Grant Morrison? Uh, it's, it's not, no. No, because he, he strikes me as the kind of guy who studies magic naked. Uh, he's, yeah. <laughs> so what I've been told. <laughs> just strikes me as what, something that he would do. Yeah. Um, there's also the guy with the hat who's lost in Shining Night. Yes. Go on. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. He shows up later on the bus. So this all ties together at the end without these people ever actually meeting each other. Yeah. Very clever. Like the the in-story explanation is that they can never meet, otherwise the whole plan well, will the fall thing, apart. The thing won't work. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Uh, Clarion 2, bad, hmm. has a cover of a close-up of Clarion. B-A-double-D-E. Yes. Uh, yeah, but it's with smoke coming out of his mouth and it looks like there's fire inside of him. And he's all, he's black. all in black. And then he's lit up from the inside. I actually quite like that cover. Yeah. With the smoke coming out of his mouth. I think that's, it's a very painterly cover. Mm. I like it. I thought that was quite cool. Clarion mm. avoids the Horrigal's attacks and climbs up and into the tunnels above. He meets another man, Ebenezer Bad, and jumps across a track as a blinding light hits the Horrigal behind them. Bad takes Clarion to a crocodile, and they ride it through the sewers, passing a group of children mm-hmm. that formed a single creature, the Leviathan. They climb off and walk through tunnels and into a room full of chains where Clarion finds a die. They make it to the river where the traders await Bad on the other side. As Bad makes a trade with them, Tickle tells Clarion that Bad trades children with them, and so Clarion uses the Leviathan to kill Bad and the traders before leaving with the children. They take him to a subway station and he rushes up and out where he is greeted by blue skies and a rather dandy man named Mr. Melmoth. First of all, he's a good, he's a good, he's Ebenezer good. Only he's Ebenezer bad. Yeah. Deliberate? <laughs> Probably, yeah. I would have thought so, yes. Again, I didn't dislike it. I like that the little girl's got Guardian's helmet. Yeah. Some shiny man took my first cart for a borrow and in return left me only this. Doesn't fit. <laughs> and he said it'll make a pot but it won't make a fine pot will it because there's eye holes in it <laughs> yeah. so Clarion's a little bit stupid so that's tying in with Guardian yeah yeah presumably yeah see I got that one and Mr Melmoth is not Grant Morrison at all <laughs> in any way no because that's how Grant Morrison dresses 
Kind of. Well, kind of. He's always he's always very well. He's always very classily dressed. Not when I saw him. Was he not? Did not have a suit on. Uh, leather pants. Uh. Uh, I think it was a Batman t-shirt. And oh, I don't had, mind the Batman. T-shirt. He had his suit jacket on. All right. I'm not sure about the leather pants. I don't think men should wear leather pants. Well, not since he had a bit of a middle-aged spread going on. Did he? Yeah. I thought he was very thin. Not now. Not all anymore. Right. Oh, all the money gone to him. Has it? <laughs> yeah. Now he's made his riches. Yeah, yeah. He's not skinny anymore. It was alright. I like the little touches with the other story. And Clarion's reaction to reality is funny. Mm. And Teekle's funny. Yeah. But the Clarion stuff, I just don't find it as interesting as the other stuff. It's not that I think it's bad. I just don't find it as good. Yeah. If you know what I mean. But you like the Clarion stuff. Yeah, yeah, I like how dark it gets, but... It gets dark because it's about child slavery. Yeah. And it gets even worse in the later issues. Well, I'm only up to number three yet, so we haven't got that. So we've got another couple of number twos to cover first. We have. I can understand how you like the Clarion stuff. You like your entity. You're just like your (laughs) mum. It has to be dark or you're not interested. Yeah. Um, Is that all about that one? Yeah, I I don't really have a lot about the Clarion ones. I don't not like them. Yeah. But I don't enjoy them as much as the other ones. I mean, I'm presuming they're all going to dovetail perfectly at the end. Yeah. Now that Melmoth's in it. Yeah. Because he kind of makes this story. Melmoth. Uh, yeah. Shining Knight issue three. The perfect knight return. Hey, Dark Knight gag. Yeah. There's a cover of a beaten Justin fighting hard of the attacking Sheeda. She does look... She. There we go again. <laughs> he does look like Promethea. Who drew Promethea? That was James Williams, Williams III, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It does look like Promethea, who I may point out is a woman. Yeah. Sorry, Simone Bianchi, but... <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's all right. It's nice cover. Yeah. Still looks like a girl. Sorry, Justin. What are you doing? <laughs> Sometime after Justin handed himself into the police, Dr. Gloria Friday... Dr. Gloria Friday is called in to inspect and interview him by FBI metahuman specialist Agent Helen Hellingen. Dear God. <laughs> not Dale Cooper. No, not Special Agent Dale Cooper. Friday inspects Justin's sword, one of seven timeless objects given to man by the gods to protect them against evil. Hellingen tells Friday her theory that this is a time travel case, and the two head into the interview room. Friday interviews Justin and he tells her the series of events that lead him here until he recognises her and she reveals herself to be Gloriana Tenebre, the Sheeda Queen. The Sheeda attack the police station in hordes but Justin manages to escape. Before being picked up by Spider in his helicopter, Gloriana bites Heligan, poisoning her. In the helicopter, Spider informs Gloriana that he shot Don Vincenzo with a biotracker virus that killed him instantly. Vincenzo! And if any life signs appear on the tracker, then they'll know where the Undri is. The Sheeda surround Vincenzo's mansion as he rises from the cauldron. Right, first of all, this is not a slam against Simone Bianchi's artwork. Were he or she... Is it a he? Yes. Simone or he? Yeah. Right, okay. Where he, he does his best... But let's be brutally honest. The first, what, 11 pages of this issue is stultifying exposition. Yeah. It's page after page of close-up of somebody's face, close-up of a sword, close-up of somebody's face, close-up of a sword. Mm. And that's all he draws for three pages. Yeah. 
It's not bad close-ups of people's faces. Yeah. They're actually quite pretty, well-drawn faces. But it's a face, and then a sword. And a face, and then a sword. And I'm reading this one going, is something going to happen in this issue? I know all this exposition needs to go somewhere. Yeah. It needs explaining what this sword is, and who Justin is, and all these people have to figure all that out. And I get that. But Jack Kirby would have had a building fall down in the middle of this. <laughs> Wouldn't he? Yeah. The first half of this issue is a little bit expository. He's only working with a script. Yeah, it, no, no, it's Morrison's fault. Yeah. Morrison's wrote it as people sit around and talk. I'm sure there must have been a more interesting way of getting the... the, um, the this imparting this knowledge. Because hmm. it's pretty boring. His panel layouts get better in this issue. Yes. Um, he's trying to make... To be fair to him... He's trying to make all this exposition visually interesting. Yeah. And it's one of those things, if this was a novel, this wouldn't matter. Because mm. you're used to sitting reading a novel where people sit around and talk. Yeah. Because visually there's nothing going on, you're reading a book. But in a comic, he's got to try and make this visually interesting. And he tries, bless him. Mm. But the first half of the issue is boring exposition. Yeah that you've got to read to understand what's going on. But then there's a lot of fight at the end. But then we get a lot of fight at the end. But it's it's a lot of exposition before we get to the fight. Yeah, and it's, it's a lot of begins before we get to the Batman. But there's also a lot of exposition about things we already know. Yeah, but I suppose he's allowing for the fact that some people may only be reading Shiny Knight. The, the, the stuff about the sword and that. Yeah. But there are some things that only really come into full play in the very, very last issue. So that's what I'm saying. So we had to put it somewhere. Yeah. But it, it makes this issue... It's not boring. But because it's not interesting. reading it, you're taking all this information in. Yeah. And like I say, as a novel, that would be fine. As a comic, it is page after page of two people sat there looking at a sword. Yeah. It's just not very interesting. Simon Biat Simone Bianchi blesses blesses little cotton socks <laughs> is doing his best to make it interesting. Yeah. But he's just kind of stuck by the fact that the script is basically saying, Well I these people they all just sit around, I and they have this conversation. I've written lots of dialogue. And Simone, if you can just make it like look good, <laughs> that'd be great, I Yeah. And Simone's like oh. <laughs> I, I like the the big plot twist that the the Friday woman was the the Sheeta Queen all yes, along. Yes, that was interesting. Did you think so? Did you not think it was obvious from the start? I kind no, not really. Did you not? No, because I think yeah, I, I don't know actually. Same name, know. similar appearance. It, it's kind of telegraph now. You pointed out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, alright. Grant Morrison shows up at the end and gets cut in half. Very definitely Grant Morrison, <laughs> because that pose is a quite famous Grant Morrison photo. Is it? Yeah. And he cuts him in half. The one of him standing in the alley with his sunglasses on. Right. I wonder what the writer thought of the artist cut. Was the artist there saying, you just made me draw 17 <laughs> pages so of people a sit around looking at a sword? I'm cutting you in half, dude. <laughs> yeah. And so he does. Mm-hmm. And that's fair enough. So yeah, the fight scenes at the end... But it's it's kind of over and done with very, very quickly. Yeah. And Spider survived. Of course. The first issue, well, he says he survived as well. Yeah. So I'm liking all the little subtle links, but I just felt like that one was a little bit too... Let's sit and talk. Yeah. So I like that bit in Star Trek, the next generation, it's got, like, have a conference. 
I do that. Well, let's just talk about the plot. Captain Kirk would have been kicking ass by now, dude. <laughs> yeah. So, I would say it isn't bad. It's readable. And it's only really afterwards... Well, not really afterwards, but when I was reading, I was turning the next page, and, and it was people sitting and talking. And then I would turn the page, and it was people still sitting and talking. Yeah. And at this point, you're like, Come, just get on with it a bit. It's not the best of the lot. No. He does his best, bless. It's actually but. kind of boring, really. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be diplomatic. At least until the fighting starts. Yeah, once the fighting starts, it's great. And now the fighting starts, but yeah. it's a long time getting there. When they're that. just talking about a sword and seven other objects, which you're going to forget about anyway when they actually become important. Yeah, but fortunately, the next issue of Guardian is brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, should we move on? Yes. Uh, Guardian issue 3 Siege at Century Hollow has a cover of the Guardian fighting robots disguised as people of all stereotypical nationalities on top of the world I like it because he's punching robots heads off (laughs) there is never anything wrong with punching robots heads off I just love the stereotypes yeah Oh, yeah, we've got an Eskimo, we've got an Egyptian, we've got a cowboy hat, we're an American, we've got a Russian. We're not on, though. Do we not count? Apparently. Or is that us in the shooting tower? Is that a Japanese tourist? I thought that was, like, a a Chinese guy throwing the computer. But he's Scotsman again, dissing on us English, (laughs) not including us on the cover. In the aftermath of Larry's death, Jake and Carla break apart. With Carla worried about Jake when he's out working and blaming him for her father's death, Jake loses the chance to propose to her. Later, at Century Hollow, New York's most unusual science park, where the population of the world is concentrated into one village, the robots rebel and attack the visitors. The Guardian enters from the sky and infiltrates the park and rescues a group of survivors in a forest. They make it through Europe and into America, where the robots overpower and outnumber them all until the Newsport army parachutes in with flamethrowers. The incident, however, was just a battle of the sexes between the married couple who created the Hollow, the husband's revenge for his unfaithful wife that lands him in jail. Jake storms into the Guardian Heights, past the receptionist, past the golem, and up to Ed and quits. Ed reveals his true self from behind the screen, a deformed baby who is about to tell Jake the headline of the century, the one about the seven soldiers and the secret history of the original Newsboy Army. This was great. Yeah. This is basically Jurassic Park or Westworld. Yeah. Where the theme park just goes mad. But I really did like the interplay between the wife and the husband. And the husband's a bit of a nonce, to be honest. And we do get a little bit of preachy about, imagine if the uh, 6 billion people on the earth were just 100. Statistically, that makes 70 non-white and 30 white. Five people own 59% of the wealth, and they all live in North America. 80 are in substandard housing, and it's oh, yawn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do like the panel of him parachuting into the world. Yeah, well, he's doing like a halo drop thing, isn't he? Yeah. Which is always cool. Um, but the rest of it, it is, it's Guardian in Westworld. <laughs> yeah. And it's really funny. And he's teaming up with the woman who is only concerned about whether the insurance is going to cover her losses. She's not bothered about all the people getting killed. And I really did like the bit where, dear Lord, she's only a child, save us, and Guardian shows up and cuts the robot's head off, and she goes, that'll do just fine, Lord. (laughs) That was funny. I love love the guy who just doesn't want to go anymore because the the robots are taking them all down. Yeah, and this one was really, really good. While still... Being kind of dark. Being kind of dark, and still forward in the story I, I, I just loved the Jurassic Park Westworld stuff yeah uh, it was absolutely great 
I like there's a look up in the skyline as well. Mm. But it's not Superman. I still like how the, the stereotypes of the, yeah. the, the French guy and the German guy are the best. <laughs> Where are they? Oh, they're on the page before, I think. Maybe. Like, like the Spanish matador. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With his hat on. Um, well, those are the French guys. Yeah, the French guy. Of course, he's got a beret on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, there we go. The French and the German guy. Yeah. Lidhausen, yeah. <laughs> this was really good. I like the double page splash at the end, though. Were, although, on the one hand, it's quite funny that the Westworld Park's gone mad. You've suddenly got him stood in front of all these people that died. Yeah. And the flamethrowers have burned the place to a crisp. And it's it suddenly brings home that actually this was quite dark. But there's also a really good subplot running through about him and his girlfriend. Or is it his wife? Are they married? No, they're not married. Because no. he proposes to her and then she tosses the ring down the drain, doesn't she? Yeah. It balances that mixture of the, the drama that's going on in his personal life with the action that he's doing as Guardian in a really good little action bit. Mm. I really like that one. I you still have the, really the, the Morrison kind of a bit too far bit where it turns out that it was revenge for his wife sleeping with one of the robots. Yeah. Although there's the line of dialogue which kind of... I, I guess it kind of implies that his wife's also a robot. Where'd you get? Are you getting the Blade Runner vibe from it? Well, that she's also a replicant. He uses the line of dialogue "I made you," which can either be you know she's only this high of a scientist because of him, or she is actually another right. robot. Okay, fair enough. I mean, we don't get a Blade Runner replicant her eyes glow red moment. Mm. But okay, for you can read it like that if you want to. I suppose. Anyway, that's as far as I've read. What do you think of the the Ed twist? Oh, that he's that he looks like what's his name? Yeah, what's his name? Who am I thinking of? Green Lantern villain. Oh, him. Yeah. Oh, not Sinestro. I thought more of the the guy in Invincible. He does look a bit like the guy in Invincible. But yeah. I'm, no, I'm thinking of the guy with the big head. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can't remember his goddamn name. Because he was the guy who had a thing for Carol Ferris. Yeah. I want to say Hammond. Yeah, Hector Hammond. Right. It is Hector Hammond. Well done. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, we knew there was something not kosher about the computer-generated image that he keeps talking to. Yeah. So that wasn't a shock. But the fact that he looks like a baby version of Hector Hammond in a nappy, <laughs> it's, it kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah. It's perfectly plausible. Maybe he's not a big evil nasty man after all. You never know. <laughs> anyway, how many issues are that? Oh, seven, eight, nine. Did maybe? we cover nine? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so next time we'll cover again as many as we get read. <laughs> I'm quite liking this freeform thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's quite good. Alright, we'll pick up next week with Clary and the Witch Boy Part 3, The Deviant Ones. So, what are your thoughts so far then? I'm enjoying it. I didn't, like I said, I didn't go into it not liking it. But when you've said, oh, it's 30 issues and we have to do seven here and seven there and six there and six there. But the fact that we've done it like this, where we've just got as far as we've got and stopped and then talked about it. Has made it more enjoyable. Has made it a bit, it's, yeah, it's less onerous. Right. And I've actually quite, the DeGuardian stuff's really good. Yeah. The Zatanna stuff's really good and the Shiny Knight stuff's really good and the Clarion stuff's just okay. But not bad. But I presume it will all tie in as we get along. So we'll see how far we get up to before next Thursday. Mm-hmm. and see if this ends up being two or three. All right, then. So we're done. Yes. Bye, then. It's a bit of a downer for an ending. <laughs> well, it's not really an ending, is it? Know, we've yeah. just got as far as... We just we've, don't know what to do. We've got as far as we've read. There's like there's, There wasn't really a big cliffhanger there. Maybe we should have covered the entire first tread. Yeah. You never know what you're going to get, do you? No. That's part of the fun. All right, we'll see you next week, then. Thanks for joining us. Very free form this week. Yes. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
scissor, the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. We got to work, no one of us. Folks go slow in the place of work. Minutes drag in the 